Hi, I'm Victor Milligan. And I'm Jennifer Isabella. Your co-host for Forrester's podcast, What It Means, where we explore the major changes in the market influencing executive priorities. We're joined today by Vice President and Research Director Harley Manning to discuss the 2019 prediction for customer experience. Welcome, Harley. Hey, thank you for having me. So top lining our prediction is the comment that 20% of brands will give up on strategic CX initiatives. That's a pretty daunting prediction. Yeah, well, I don't want to be a Debbie Downer, but I guess I am. Uh, So what we're seeing is that for the last three years, customer experience scores in our CX index have been flat. And so even the leaders uh, who they've been staying leaders, but they're, they're not going anywhere. Um, some of the worst brands have gotten a little bit better. Some of the best brands have dropped a little bit. They're bunching up in the okay range. And some of them, uh, we feel, in fact, we started to see signs of this already, are going to say, you know what, I am just not going to win based on customer experience. So I'll just sort of put it in cruise control and I'm going to try to do something else. So I'm going to give you three buckets to choose from and you let me know which which bucket seems to be the causing the most problem here. Mm-hmm. Bucket one is that customers' expectations are evolving at a faster clip than they can move, mm-hmm. one. Two is, is that mechanically they're not doing the work well. Three is they're doing the work well, except that they're trying to change an internal organization that may be resilient to change, whether that's a comment about organizational inertia, political silos, political clout, whatever that might be, those those three buckets. Well, I wasn't expecting, wait, wait, don't tell me, but uh, I am going to go <laughs> with uh, bucket number three, uh, which is that uh, they frankly have been doing things a certain way for a long time. And if they want to break through and, and make a serious change in the experience that they deliver, they're going to have to blow some things up. And that's hard to do. Harley, how does business acumen play here? So I know that there's organizational inertia, like Victor had mentioned, but also... Doing things differently means you have to learn new skills or understand how to convince people that you're doing the right thing. So can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, absolutely. So the customer experience professionals that we work with tend to be people who are very skilled in things like journey mapping and ethnographic research and design. And uh, whole swaths of them are experts at CX metrics and voice of customer programs. And these are all extremely important and useful things. Uh, you notice in that list, I did not include financial modeling. Uh, not so much of a skill set that these people have. And not surprisingly, that's not what they signed up for. They signed up for understanding the customers and understanding what solutions would help the customers and then measuring the results. Unfortunately, somebody needs to sign up for putting together an ROI model. They need to sign up for uh, taking a project, uh, costing it out, uh, estimating the benefit and leading with, uh, I'm going to bring you this benefit at this cost for this ROI. And it's a funny comment because it's almost like they're trying to compel the internal organization to win on the battleground of experience versus the organization has bought into that thesis. Well, that's, that's a very interesting point because uh, the organization typically has bought in to the extent that nobody gets up in the morning and says, well, let's just stick it to our customers today. I mean, maybe some companies do, but not the forced the clients I talk to, frankly, I don't run into that. Uh, what I think happens, though, is they go, yeah, it's important to treat our clients well. Uh, and I have a CFO and I have a board and I have shareholders and I need to be able to tell them what they're going to get for any investment that I make. Uh, so I can't actually green light a huge expense unless you can tell me what the return is. So the belief is there. 
Uh, but it's sort of the size of the commitment that is in question, given that other people do show up uh, being able to say, if you spend this much, you're going to get this much more benefit. So at its heart, there's a lack of an overwhelming financial argument for its benefit. So therefore, an inability to catalyze the organization to think differently, to operate differently, maybe restructure products, maybe restructure their delivery model, all sorts of things that are more formidable in their scale. Yeah, that's correct. And the irony is that, in fact, there is huge economic upside, and it's not that hard to model if you know how to make a model and if you are so inclined to do that. So uh, it's the, the, the relationship between customer experience and bottom line business results has been well understood by us now for years and by lots of other people too. Uh, but we've been able to establish this relationship between customer experience and customer loyalty. It's super clear. It's in the numbers. Um, it's complicated, but in its simplest form, if customer experience goes up, customer loyalty goes up. And by customer loyalty, we're talking about stay with the company longer, keep buying from them, buy more from them, uh, recommend them, and also uh, other kinds of effects like uh, I'm not having problems, so I'm not calling you and running up your customer service costs, so cost to serve go down. So the first few things that I mentioned drive your revenue up. That last thing I mentioned drive your costs down. So both growth and profitability can come from simply moving people from I'm not happy and therefore I'm not buying from you to I'm happy and therefore I'm buying from you. So the, the relationship is there. It's putting some granularity on and putting it into a spreadsheet. That's a little harder, but it's, it's hardly rocket science. And that comment exists for the top line, but there's a cost equation here as well, which is if I don't compel loyalty, and either I lose to someone else who is, so therefore they're sort of exciting churn from me, I'm going to have to goose up my acquisition program, which is high cost, mm -hmm. just to stay flat. I mean, th there's a cost equation here that's equally as compelling. And often cost motivates people or cost and risk motivate people more than top line gains. I mean, there's a cost equation here of I simply can't afford to lose or trip that many customers at one time. Yeah. And also like a fixed pie component to that equation too, right? There are only so many customers available. It's not like there's just this influx of customers available to you. You're working with or against your competitors for those same people. Well, you know, that's funny because one very large company that I shall not name, uh, their reason that they uh, don't get too excited about customer experience is that they have a belief that there'll always be more customers and that they can keep filling up that bucket, which just strikes me as really? It's 2018. This is, you know, <laughs> um, hopefully I thought we were more sophisticated than that. But no, Victor's point is spot on. I mean, if you've got a big hole in your bucket, you're going to have to pump a lot of water into it to keep it full. And that's exactly what's going on. And in fact, that translates right into the kind of economic argument you can make for customer experience. Uh, some of the more forward-thinking companies are uh, very receptive to the, you know, let me show you how I can grow the revenue uh, some of the other ones that are a little bit more responsive to the old FUD thing, uh, it's better to show them, here's what happens if you do nothing, because there is a cost to doing nothing, which is that uh, you will continue to lose customers at the same rate, or that rate can get worse if your competitors start improving their customer experience and sucking your customers away from you, because, yeah, to a large extent, it is a zero-sum game. Kind of a funny thing, because... 
seven years ago when so broadly the market intellectually accepted that the customer was taking a very prominent, powerful role in terms of how the market would evolve. Mm -hmm. CEOs and CMOs, others did a very good job changing their collateral, you know, annual reports, 10Ks, whatever it might mm -hmm. be. And the word customer became prolific. But your argument is that all that excitement and collateral hasn't really cascaded down to real budgeting, real political clout that makes it so that the CX, the people that are very good at the mechanical part don't have to fight this war on their own, which is sort of how you're describing it. Well, yeah, I mean, if you could be very excited about running a marathon, but if you don't go out and train by running, you're probably not ever going to run that marathon, right? So people definitely, they recognize that the customers are powerful. Um, they, they recognize that they need to serve them. Uh, their hearts are in the right places, but they gets to the second thing you mentioned. They're, in some cases, they're just not doing the right thing or they're not doing it as well as they, as they should. And it's very easy to get distracted by other uh, aspects of business. And the fact of the matter is, you know, business is complex. There are lots of things going on. And we never say customer experience is the only thing you have to do well. That's patently not true. Uh, it's just the thing that's probably less familiar than the marketing, the logistics, uh, some of the other kinds of things that company's been doing for a long time. And it's very easy to just sort of fall into that trap of the old muscle memory, doing the things you always did and not focusing enough on the new thing, especially because doing the new thing is hard. Yeah, we've seen quite a bit that companies intellectually agree that there's a lot of change coming towards them externally. Mm -hmm. A lot of, they sometimes couch in the word disruption. It was my take that CX was going to be the internal disruptor. It was going to interpret the external dynamics and come in and say, this is how we're going to have to sort of orchestrate our business differently to continuously adapt to the world outside our four walls. But I don't think it was ever really taken on as an internal disruptor because that would have elevated its role and meaning up to the CEO, up to the allocation resources, up to all sorts of things. Mm -hmm. It kind of got brought into sort of almost a business as usual kind of thing. Let's find fix within the current context. Yes. So uh, there is a, there's definitely a, a segmentation that's going on. And you know, as I mentioned earlier, the, the, the CX leaders, uh, flat though they are, uh, are still the CX leaders. So the people at the top tend to hold on to their positions at the top. And so year after year in the CX index, we see uh, the same people. You know, we see the Navy Federal Credit Unions and banking and the USAA and other uh, financial areas. And we see JetBlue and Southwest and the airlines, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So we see the repeat winners. What's happening is that they've hit sort of a ceiling. They're having a hard time breaking through. So they're definitely putting a lot of effort into it, and they definitely are thinking about innovation. So what you just addressed, a different problem. These are the people who are sort of in the middle, whose uh, horizon is essentially fix the problems, which is good. It's a good thing to do. But that certainly won't differentiate you because nobody's going to say, oh, I want to work with them because they're less bad than they were before. Um, you know, I want to buy more from them because the, that problem went away. Uh, maybe that would happen if other people weren't fixing their problems, but that's not what's happening. The people who have problems are fixing them. That's the thing that they are doing systematically. And so the bar is rising. And uh, to your other original point, yeah, and customer expectations are rising. It's slowly, but steadily. We see it in the data. Hmm. Even in our language here, we talked about CX as being helpful to the top line. That has been sort of our, our storyline. Mm -hmm. And you said earlier, Harley, that some people can or should try the FUD route, sort of fear, uncertainty, mm -hmm. and doubt. There seems to be a bit of, there's a sort of a helpful note in that thing, which is it might be useful to start talking about the future downside if the economy does sort of slow down. 
this FUD argument actually has merit, which is you're going to start to see that leaky bucket have the, the hole get bigger. Yeah, well, if the economy does go down and people suddenly don't have as much money to spend, uh, then if you're just doing the whole rising tide lifted all boats, then your boat will sink as the tide does. Uh, but in, in that particular case, your opportunity would be to improve the customer experience to the point that those customers, even though they're spending less in total, are shifting their share of wallet, some of that to you. And so you stay whole uh, more so than some of your competitors. You don't lose the customers. You maybe gain some share of wallet, even though the wallet's going lower, uh, good word of mouth. Uh, and, and that's going to give you some resistance to the economic downturns. I mean, if you look at the companies that are best at customer experience, if you look at, uh, I mentioned USAA, for example, uh, they, 98% year-over-year customer retention rate. And that's been true. They were founded before the Great Depression in the 30s, and they actually got much bigger during the Depression because people said, wow, this is terrible. I need a company that I can really trust and rely on and flock to USAA. 2008 was their best year ever up until that point. But it seems like inside that comment, there's advice, which is one way to build a financial model is strictly on the top line. If you do this, things will get better. Mm -hmm. The other one is to sort of minimize risk, which is we believe this will happen in the marketplace. And we believe CX is actually a, a very critical mitigant to being one of the boats that sort of sinks with the water kind of thing. Yeah. And it's pretty easy to model that, actually. Um, so you, <laughs> frankly, the easiest way to do it is first you model the upside and let's say that uh, you are able to demonstrate in your model um, that a 1% increase in the CX index, one, or, sorry, one point in, uh, increase in the CX index is going to deliver you, you know, $20 million. Just flip it around. Go, let's see what happens if we drop 1%. So that's negative 20 million. How much, how do you, how do you, how do you like losing 20 million CEO? Mm -hmm. Does that, that sound good for you? Because then we could drop two points, three points, four points. You can just keep adding that up in a bad economy. And uh, let's just put a multiplier on that. So in our predictions all in for 2019, there was a theme that existed across the different areas, whether it was digital transformation, AI, CX, what have you, which was a turn to pragmatism, which was at some point in time, there was a set of ideals that I could digitally transform my business while CX is my method of competing in the marketplace and AI brought forth new opportunities for products and new efficiencies in the operations. But I think it was enthusiasm over reality kind of thing. And one of those pieces that played out across them was data. So you go from, you know, politics, organizational nurture strategy to the very mundane but critically important concept of data, that data governance is lagging companies' desire to exploit data. How much is that affecting CX, which they really don't have a data governance underneath them to make data work for them? Well, there's certainly it's certainly a situation in a lot of companies where the employees who need the data are not getting the data. Um, partially, it has to do with how it's captured. It still tends to be captured by business unit and by channel and get stuck in data silos and, and not shared. And uh, there's still far too few companies that have a coherent picture of a customer as they cross channels and, and business units. Uh, and then there's getting that data once you've gathered it uh, back out to the people who can actually use that, whether it's a, a contact center rep who needs to know that this person that's talking to them has been having a very bad time in multiple channels lately, 
uh, or whether it's a frontline manager in one of your physical locations who needs to know that um, uh, his employees are getting dinged and maybe there's one or two that are problematic, just have bad attitudes. So it's that self-correcting loop uh, that uh, can, if, if it's not in full operation, uh, can be very problematic. And one of the big innovations that we've seen with the customer feedback management platforms is they've gotten better and better at uh, pulling off just the particular piece of data that a particular type of employee, whether that's a frontline customer or service person or an exec, just what they need and presenting that to them in a format that they can access, like a, uh, a mobile app that just has the top line results for the day, as opposed to something that tells you your exact survey results um, from a customer who interacted with you. So that, that is an area where there's been progress made, but I, I can't say that it's um, as, as broadly adopted yet as we would love it to be. So going from the mundane to the transcendental, let's go to hmm. purpose for a second. In our predictions, one of, the, one of our assertions was that the brand energy, the brand equity has broadly declined. Too many brands are kind of neutral. You certainly see that in significant ways in banking where 33% of consumers surveyed say, I don't really can't tell the difference between any of the banks. It's a rate game out there. It also turns my attention to purpose, which is at one point in time, purpose-driven strategies was a thing mm -hmm. and is what glued the organization together and it motivated them through times of change. If all that collateral we just talked about that said the word customer in it was tied to a strong purpose, you would imagine that people would adopt some of the CX mantle just because it was worth it, not because the CX person said, hey, we should. But we don't see a ton of evidence where purpose sort of carried the day. Well, it's interesting you say that because, uh, again, those going back to the, the CX leaders, if you look at their uh, mission statements or vision statements, you know, what they say about themselves, the, the purpose that they state for their companies, it tends to be about a customer. It tends to be about... Um, uh, improving the financial well-being of their customers for mem for generations to come at USAA or, you know, JetBlue, bring humanity back to air travel or uh, Kaiser Permanente, which, you know, in the daily health insurance, challenging uh, category, uh, but they're the leader in it. And uh, they talk about uh, improving member health care outcomes. Um, so it's funny because you can swap out the name of what they do and you could almost, you could almost take... Um, uh, the Kaiser Permanente statement and the USAA statement and just swap them and, and just put in a couple of different words about their category. Uh, so this idea of we are on a mission, it's to improve uh, the lives of our customers in some way. Uh, that's, that's very important. And those brands have, uh, in my opinion, very strong brand equity. They, they do stand out. Earlier in this discussion, you said something that caught my attention, but I didn't follow up with it at the time, that 20% of the brands will give up, mm -hmm. that CX will fall into the background, and what you'll be left with was the old mechanics of pricing and the types of things. Could you say more about that? Yeah. So uh, companies have competed uh, in a s small number of ways, like pricing, um, location, um, product assortment. And these are classic and we know that they can work under the right conditions. Certainly if you've got a geographic monopoly to this day, 
um, that's that's a good thing. You know, some some cable franchises, for example, still they own a particular town. It's happening less and less, but you know that that can work. So uh, certainly, no one's going to turn down a better price if that's all other things are are equal and that's on offer. Uh, so what we're seeing is that faced with the difficulty of being a lot better at customer experience and faced with competition by other competent people, uh, we are seeing this tendency to say, well, you know, maybe I'll just put a pin in the CX improvement thing and just try not to get worse and I will try and stand out by virtue of cost. And the, the first company that came to our attention in a big way is Fidelity. Uh, with their zero-cost funds that they introduced. Now, is that a big attention getter? You bet. You know, who doesn't love zero-cost? Everybody loves zero-cost. And Fidelity's actually pretty good at customer experience. So why would you do something like this? Well, you do something like this because you're in a category that is incredibly competitive with regards to customer experience. And you've got Vanguard managing over $4 trillion of assets. That's got a particularly strong value proposition of its own. And so what do you do? Are you going to um, somehow find a magical way to be way better than Vanguard and start taking away customers from them? You could, but that's that's pretty hard. And so it probably seems like the easier route to just say, hey, let's have some zero cost funds and attract some more clients and build on that. Uh, the question that we have about that is, where does that end? It's a classic race to the bottom problem. It's a classic race to the bottom problem. I, I, uh, I'm old enough now to remember the days when uh, there were a small number of long-distance carriers and you could get a check in the mail for switching from one to the other. And look how well that played out. Oh, wait, it didn't. So uh, this is the kind of thing that that I can see why it would be seductive. It was seductive then. Uh, these are smart people. We just don't see it uh, playing out so well in the long run. And yet uh, there are a lot of companies, and this is where the 20% number came from, that we've seen that are good, but they haven't managed to get any kind of a differentiating lead. And um, they're sitting in that zone of frustration and we think that a very significant percentage of those, 20% of the total, are going to look for other ways to compete and price is going to be the obvious one. I'm not sure if I'm appealing to the optimistic Harley or the pessimistic Harley, but CX is a long game. Mm -hmm. We just talked about 2019. What do you see as being normal in 2020? Where do we go from here? I think there's going to be a lot of separation between the people who are the leaders uh, and the people who are in the, that middle undifferentiated pack. And the reason is because right now it is a good economy and it is relatively easy to change jobs. And if you're someone who is really good at customer experience, you know, if you're one of those people who does journey maps like nobody's business and imparts insights to business people who can make smart decisions, um, and you are frustrated because your company is not making the major investments, it's not going to be all that hard to pick up and go to one of the companies that are making the major investments. So I think you're going to start seeing uh, the, the leaders and the people who are aggressive and who are serious and who are doing the business modeling, hoovering up all the top expertise, which is going to both accelerate them, but also it's going to uh, put a drag on their competitors. And so I think the way that that's going to play out is that the expertise goes to the best. And uh, also we see a, a movement where these experts spend a huge part of their time educating other people on customer experience 
so that people can make better, more informed decisions themselves uh, in their day-to-day activities and know when they do need to go to that expert uh, and when they can just handle it themselves. So that should start the flywheel building up some momentum for those people. I don't think we'll see uh, enormous uh, differences uh, in 2019 because I think that's when the flywheel will will build up. But I think that going into 2020, for example, we'll start to see uh, some one, two, three point improvements on the upside and one or two point decreases on the downside. And that's where that spread will come because a five point spread in the CX index is a big deal. Harley, it's always a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Forrester's 2019 predictions are here. Download the guide at forcom slash predictions 2019 to uncover the major dynamics that will impact your business in the coming year. Again, that's forrcom slash predictions 2019. Thanks for listening. Thank you.